Hello and welcome to the BNP Paribas Markets 360 podcast. We cover the topics that matter from the global economy to market strategy. Hello, my name is Jason Lee and I'm the Market 360 APEC coordinator. I'm joined by Jacqueline Rung, Chief China Economist, and Christopher Lee, Head of Credit Trading Desk Analyst for APEC. And our topic for today is the implications of the global banking uncertainties on China. It is Tuesday, 11th of April, 11 a.m. in Hong Kong. Hello, Jacqueline. Can you please share with us what are the implications of the recent global banking stress on the Chinese economy? Thanks, Jason. The most direct channel of repercussion is through trade. Although it is unclear how the banking sector turmoil will involve, further tightening in credit conditions in the U.S. and Europe would weigh on their economic growth. Our economists there have already revised down growth forecasts for this year and next, even with the assumption that risk premium will stabilize over time. Exports has become a notable dragger of the Chinese economy into 2023, and a more muted growth outlook in DM countries would likely exacerbate the export downturns. On the positive side, risk off as a result of banking sector strains have lowered global commodity prices, which improves China's terms of trade given commodities accounts for a third of China's total imports. Therefore, Despite of the declining exports, China's merchandise trade surplus is likely to stay elevated this year. Uh, lower commodity prices exacerbate China's PPI deflation. We estimate PPI inflation has slipped further to minus 2.7% year-over-year in March. PPI deflation is one of the reasons behind our view that the unfolding consumption recovery will not lead to a sharp rise in CPI inflation. Thanks, Jacqueline. How sound is the Chinese banking system? Chinese banks have limited exposure to regional banks in the U.S. In fact, the banking system has become more robust over time as regulatory requirements have increased in the past five years. Since 2017, regulators have launched several rounds of campaigns to curb financial risks. As a result, shadow banking has been compressed by $30 trillion, according to the PBOC. The authorities also disposed of a few risky conglomerates and almost clear out internet finances. Although the deleveraging campaign in the property sector can be criticized for some excesses, it did highlight the authorities' intent to preemptively rein financial risks. As a result, overall financial risk has cooled compared with five years ago. In addition, major indicators gauging the health of banks, such as capital adequacy and NPR ratio, has improved steadily. The main risk facing Chinese banks is credit risk, with loans representing over 70% of banks' total assets. Steady economic recovery in 2023 should help ease banks' overall credit risk. The state of the property sector, the biggest borrowers from banks, has improved thanks to a gradual rebound in property sales and growing policy support for developers. Market risk seems to be well contained in China for now, given that most banks hold onshore rates bonds, which have been far less volatile than that in DM countries. 
Financial markets seems to be on the same page with us. Both stocks and bonds of Chinese banks have been much more resilient than most global peers over the past few weeks. Let's now move to the credit side. Hi, Chris. How do you see the Asia AT1s differ from the European and US peers in structural and loss absorption practice? On the structure side, China Bank AT1s are mixed. They started initially as bank-preferred shares that are more like U.S. AT1s, but over time they moved to Europe-style bank subordinated perps, simply to allow more unlisted banks to be able to replenish capital. So we see three key features and lessons from the past credit events. Number one is the loss absorption trigger is generally concise, comprising a point of non-viability trigger and sometimes plus a numerical CET1 trigger. Preferred shares, as we mentioned earlier, have equity conversion clauses, while per bonds cannot convert to equity. The second feature is there is no explicit language that common equity instruments are the first to absorb losses, nor are there explicit warnings that AT1s can be written off before stocks that are seen in Swiss AT1s. The third takeaway is there has been a case, Bank of Jinzhou, where offshore AT1 was repaid at par after state-related funds recapitalized the bank. So on the practical side, while China's AT1 write-off language might not be the most investor-friendly, we see the underlying stability of the local banking system, economic growth momentum, regulatory willingness, and the capacity to support as the main price-driving factors. This is because, firstly, Chinese banks are largely locally focused traditional commercial banks with relatively smaller investment banking arms compared with Europe or the U.S. And secondly, there is a larger pile of tier two bonds outstanding in the Chinese system than in Europe or the U.S. These tier twos typically have similar write-off triggers to AT1s, but are held by a wider low risk appetite investor base. Last but not least. Economic growth is much more reliant on local banking systems compared with developed markets, where equities and private credit play a larger role. So a malfunction of banks could therefore have broader economic repercussions. Thank you, Jacqueline and Chris, for joining us today, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. For more information, please follow us on Twitter or visit our Markets 360 portal.